know, it's completely natural to have ups and downs, challenges, uh, job changes in the wine industry, just like many other industries. And, you know, along the way, if you are lucky, you find a handful of people you click with. Sure, there will be differences, but they are... Uh, these people, they are people that see a lot of what you see, and there are certain things they will see that you don't, and that is great. But it feels like you all have the same, you know, 3D glasses on and are watching this same surreal story play out in, in real life. And if you're really lucky, you get a few people who chop through that meat for you a little bit and analyze and lead, talk through. And maybe more importantly, just be there to listen. Uh, Mick Descamps is that to a lot of people, including me. Advanced sommelier from Metro Detroit. Friend, mentor, family man. Great cook and also a sneaky good provider of delicious bottled spice. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And thank you for listening to Small Town Sound. I'm here with Mick Descamps, who is, in my opinion, uh, one of the more important people in the Michigan wine industry. His humility will probably tell you otherwise. He is the current wine director for Red Wagon, a really wonderful retail chain uh, in Metro Detroit that sells killer bottles of wine. Mick, thank you for joining me on the Small Town Psalm podcast. How are you? Super happy to be here, man. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for making time, Justin. Mick, what's on your mind lately um, when you see trends at the store lately? What's, what are people doing? What are people, what's changed? So is it changed among the consumer or change among the business? I guess starting with the consumer. I mean, I, it's a really complicated time. I mean, <laughs> I don't need to tell anybody who's a restaurant owner like you. Uh, but, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the words that I've tried to come up with, this really crazy tidal wave, of business that we've had retail over the last several months is self-soothing. You know what I mean? I think people are trying to make themselves feel better. You would think theoretically that was always the case, but right now I think more than ever, that's where we are at as a public with regard to wine and liquor and beer, but with wine, with what I do primarily, um, I think that is the big driver. I don't know if there's any specific change in my side with necessarily a, a different area or a different boom. I mean, I think seasonality is always at play. But yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, it's just people are drinking more. And I think they're really trying to grab onto as best they can that whole idea of trying to make themselves feel better in really a pretty kind of weird time. This is a this is a loaded term, and I think you used a, a, a better term when you say self soothing. You know, there's a lot of people that would call that self medicating, and yeah. which I don't know if that's right or wrong. But I, I I'm not here for that. But I think that's an interesting yeah. conversation. Um, but mm. what, one thing that that I find fascinating is there's this element of oh cool I get to drink cool wines or I get to try new beers and at least I get to have that at least I get to. Yeah. Go, go home and have that with my spouse, significant other, you know, or my closest best friends. And so I kind of wonder, and you can 
you know, illuminate me on this. Um, is are you are you sort of away from the general stresses of of the negativity that other retailers might see from time to time? Do you get that vibe from people? Um, we've. I mean, I've. That's a. There's a lot to unpack there. I think uh, we've gone through waves, right? Um, I've been outside of like a week, you know, week or so that I took off during the heaviest part of the pandemic early in Michigan. I've worked all the while and we've seen a pretty uh, interesting shift. Um, and it's not even a shift towards, it's not a linear kind of shift. It's more circular or more wave-like where there have been waves of negativity waves of intense positivity and camaraderie among, you know, people like, Oh yeah, thanks for being here. And then there's this whole, there's part of that same, maybe um, negative retail philosophy, especially with regard to masks that you, you know, it's just, it's a crazy, it's been a very weird time, you know? And um, I think overwhelmingly there's been more positive than negative as a whole, but increasingly it's becoming more 50, 50, unfortunately. So you have three children, you have a a busy family life and you're also juggling a really, uh, very quickly augmented retail experience. Um, I would, I would imagine, especially going into what schools are like, uh, mostly being online, like this has got to be a really crazy surreal experience for you. It is. And you're right. And you know, on the backside of things. So I'm going to stay on as beverage director, as wine director, rather. But I'm going down to part time. Um, Really, this is kind of week one in it, even though next week is officially the first week. So I am when I'm not at work. I mean, I'm going to digest, condense the amount of work that I would need to do operationally into two to three days um, of being there. And obviously I'm going to do a lot of things remotely, but then when I'm not there, I'm going to be doing, I'm going to be putting on my teacher hat. Uh, my wife is a teacher and she's a lot better at this kind of stuff than I could ever be, but I am going to be there, I guess, trying to make sure the kids are where they're supposed to be on a day-to-day basis when I'm home. So three mornings a week, uh, three days a week, I'm going to be there with them, making sure they're logged in correctly and that whole thing. So this is going to be an adventure. I mean, I love learning. I have no idea really what I'm up against. That's for sure. So it's going to be interesting to do both. That's for sure. So you put yourself through, speaking of learning, I mean, you've been learning your whole life. You've been, I mean, what's, what's your, what's your bachelor's degree in? Biology. Biology. And this is at, was this Wayne State? Yep. So you go from biology, you're, you're already in restaurants at this point? No. No, okay. originally no, and then I was trying to look towards a master, a master's degree um, that I never really worked through in micro, you know, microbial science, um, and then in that process of trying, just going to school to try to, I don't know, find the next step. Um, I was working in restaurants, and I found wine, or wine found me, and you know, that's kind of the illumination moments um, to realize that this could actually be a career. So you grew up in Metro Detroit. That's where you spend your college years. Where, 
where was sort of the launching pad of you thinking to yourself, oh, the wine's kind of fun. I like doing this stuff. I mean, I think seri- from a serious standpoint, it was probably in 2000, year 2000, year 2001, where that really kind of started. The seeds, you know, the, the I guess the, the soil was right, but it wasn't until I worked with the right people where I realized that outside of this being a, an honest interest that grabbed my attention because of how movable it was and how quick to change it was, um, you know, wine as a subject. It wasn't until I worked with uh, a handful of people, some of them you know, some of them you don't. Madeline Trifon is one of them. Um, Michelle DeHaze is another. And Rick Rubel is a guy that you probably don't know, but if he was, you know, he, he moved to, to Charleston, South Carolina in the mid-2000s. And, but, you know, those kind of people opened the doors, shined a brighter light on this as a category for career. What makes somebody the right person for that? Um, I would say, you know, that's a, it's a great question. Um, I think anybody can learn about a subject, right? I mean, anybody who's smart enough, who's a hard enough worker can learn about a subject. And we all know that. I mean, from being in school, I mean, you you studied journalism, right? Yes. Um, you know that there's plenty of people that you worked with or went to school with who are great students, but maybe maybe they weren't going to be, you know, necessarily the people who are going to be great people people. You know, maybe they could make themselves into good uh, copywriters or good editors, but maybe not necessarily great journalists. And I look at, you know, wine is, is not just one thing, but I would say as being the discipline that I was interested in was the people part of wine, being a sommelier. So why, why not be like, a, I don't know, like a uh, just straight theory person, like a, you know, master of wine, you know, not to say that masters of wine people cannot be just great people, people, but for me, it was always the interesting part of the interaction. So how to take a subject that might be confusing and how to relate it to somebody who might not necessarily be as invested, but interested. And I guess, you know, that one, it made it fascinating for me. But two, I would say the people who are most successful in this business are those who can take um, that obscure concept and not dumbing it down at all, but to smartly relate it on a digested level of information, more condensable bits of information, and be able to, to relate it to somebody um, quickly and with confidence and with, you know, and with humility. I mean, I think that's, that's a, these are, those are a lot of asks, but there, I mean, I would say you really do need to be a good people person first and foremost. And that is not the answer I would have given you 15, 20 years ago. That's for sure. So, but the people person thing is important as an ambassador to you. I, I assume it's because if you say the wrong thing, then all of a sudden the light turns off and they're not interested. Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, if you've worked in this business long enough, um, you understand that there's been a lot of um, mistreatment you know, with, with wine elitists or bad sommeliers or just, you know, maybe the, the corporate aspects of wine that don't necessarily seek to understand uh, people. I don't like using words like consumers. 
I like to use words like guests, right? Guests make it feel like people are there to be part of a, a of an experience. Consumers makes it like a data point. And I think too often we look at, you know, society looks at people the wrong way. We're not looking at them as people enough. And I think that's, that's part of this. I don't know if I answer that correctly or not, but. Well, I don't know if there's a correct answer, but part of, part of that matrix that you sort of explained uh, kind of conjures up this one thing that they talk about when you're pitching something to somebody where you're creating elevator speeches, where you're stuck in an elevator, you're going 12 floors up with the same person that you've been trying to get a meeting with. And you have 25 seconds to explain this one thing in very precise, succinct elementary language that's also convincing and doesn't put somebody uh, in, in, you know, no pun intended, in, in a corner. Yeah. Um, and I wonder how easy that is when you're trying to explain. I mean, that sort of thing's easy if you're explaining for all of us, pretty much. If you're explaining mm-hmm. Pinot versus Cabernet, like that's a pretty easy ask. Right. Um, but to try and explain, you know, uh, you know, Mont Louis or Loire versus Savignier, that's that's a tough ask for a table sometimes. And like, I don't know exactly uh, to, to the level of mastery how many different versions of those speeches you have to have or and not that you have to have them in your head but but to the level of mastery that's where it gets sort of mind-boggling just the, yeah. sh- the sheer amount of information that you have to have to provide yourself the opportunity for that guest to have uh to feel warm and invited in that conversation to sure. to feel like it's happening with them instead of to them like yeah like that's a that's a very hard ask well i mean i would say though this is the this is the, the thing that i've come and you probably have at some point too, um, is it's not necessarily the information so much as it is the delivery. Um, and I'm not saying that weekly or as a cop-out. I'm saying there are times there, there's going to be people who are smarter than you, who know better, who know more than you. Um, I've encountered it plenty of times. And, you know, the point is, is that if you don't know, um, don't know the answer to a given question, how are you going to thoughtfully handle it, you know, without being, I don't know, embarrassed or arrogant or what have you? I mean, you're going to say, you know, I don't know. I'm not too sure. But, you know, please give me a moment. I'm going to find out for you as best I can. Or let me go ahead and check real quick with my, you know, beverage director or let me check um, in the kitchen or, you know, that's more. I think that's more to the point for me than to have all of the answers. Having all the answers is great but it's not, not realistic either. You know, in many situations, you'll have most of them. In some situations, you won't have any of them. <laughs> you know, it's how do you, but you still, you can't separate yourself from the duty of, of handling it. So, and, I, and that's, that's, that's one of the harder things to learn. But honestly, you know, if you're charming and you know how to connect um, or you continue to try, you're going to, you're probably going to be more right than wrong uh, most of the time how, how did what were the uh what were the steps that got you there who helped you i mean madeline trefan is i would say is a great she's been amazing um she's a, a wonderful service person from the standpoint of helping to knock out and put put a mirror next to me when i when i wasn't seeing myself for some of the problems that I've had. And I don't, I don't consider myself like any kind of finished work, but you know, one of the things that 
I really worked at is not paying attention to what I know or not what I've done or any of that. I don't care. I mean, it's, it's not what's important. If those things can help me in a situation, great. And if they, you know, no matter what it's, it's separating, you know, she's, she really helped separate some of the worst, you know, some of the potentially dangerous parts of my ego. Um, and I, I don't like to point fingers at anybody and, but you, we've seen, sommeliers or people in other businesses too get hung up on their own praise right you know maybe there are markets who celebrate sommeliers we don't have that kind of market in michigan well well speak, speaking of that i mean can you can you give a little bit of a bio for those who don't know who for uh, who madeline trafon is so madeline trafon is uh um first american master sommelier woman um she's uh you know a um, went to school to be, um, you know, professional, like she was professionally trained in theater. Uh, she also found wine, um, in her studies. She is, um, Greek American and, um, you know, kind of the, you know, she's become the ambassador for wine in not just Michigan, but in many circles, you know, one of the best ambassadors for 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 wine service and wine as a business in america but she's been you know her she's been a fixture in the metro detroit area for four decades five decades almost now i'm not gonna don't you can edit that out because i don't know if she <laughs> wants that the time in there but you know that's just how this goes i mean so she's been this wonderfully steadying supportive influence for a number countless people um, not just in Michigan, but, you know, the entire country. And I would say there's a great many people who, who, you know, owe her a lot. I, I'm lucky to call her, uh, you know, a, a mentor, even luckier to call her a friend. Um, she's tremendously funny and she's very fair. She's very honest, but, um, love her to death. So, you know, I have a lot of friends and colleagues um, in this industry around this country who point to her as an example of uh, inspiration, I would say would be like the first word that comes up, but also um, her, she seems to have or exude incredible warmth to people that maybe they have not received from other people who they have looked up to. Yeah, um, I think that's a really important thing. And it's fascinating to me because I mean, I started this podcast sort of because I feel like I'm a little bit on, on an island here in greater Lansing, but sure. I'm sort of attached to the metro Detroit market. And we kind of joke internally that there's not much of a Psalm culture, but there sort of is. And I don't really know how to define if it's because of a lower amount of sommeliers or a dearth of opportunities. And obviously COVID plays into that now. Sure. But there's something there that is culture. And Madeline is part of the reason you're part of the reason Claudia Tiagi is part of the reason. I mean, what, what is Southeast Michigan and restaurant culture and some culture actually, what does it feel like it, it, it truly is? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I, I think there's a great wine culture here. I think there always has been. I think sommelier culture, I would, you know, and might separate that out a little bit. Um, and I think when I say I'm separating that out a little bit, I don't necessarily think they're the same thing anymore. Um, I, I think there are plenty of people here who are great wine professionals. I, I think the, 
one of the, the things that I've tried to do, and I, I know Madeline's tried to do, is connect people in you. I, I mean, I think that's the whole idea of connecting people to make sure that they don't feel like they're on an island, right? That they don't feel like they're doing this by themselves. And I know you've worked a lot with that. And I think that's important. I mean, you know, one of the bigger challenges is for any, everybody is location, not, you know, I mean, I, I, I wish I, you know, for, for, you know, for many years, I've been out of restaurants. I've been out of restaurants since 2013. And, you know, um, I wish I was in a restaurant, especially during, um, you know, some of the connection, you know, one, I, you know, some, some years ago, I, I got into a car accident and it gave me a lot of time while I was off to think. And I'm like, you know, I really do want to make a bigger effort to, you know, connect people in this business again. And I wish, you know, my, if I'm looking back, I'm like, I wish I was in a restaurant for some of this, you know, because it's easier, Justin. I mean, when, you know, you can not just theoretically do it, you know, you can, you can, um, you can do theory remotely. You can do study sessions and stuff like that, but the service drills and stuff like that, um, as well as blind tasting sessions, you know, it's nice to have a home base and I, I can, you know, in pivoting, that's one of the things that Madeline did and uh, many of her peers did for a long time that was successful. And I felt when there is a home base like that, there does feel like there's more of a, um, I don't know, like a, you know, a community house, so to speak. So such that there is this, this whole, you know, touchstone where people can actually unite and uh, I'm not giving up, but I, I think that's something to, to aim for. And this is not meant to be cynical to other markets. And I'm, and I'm certainly not going to be cynical about Michigan on this because I'm, I feel very aware of the struggles uh, that we've had with culture building. I know you have too. And to me, I, I always see this, a, a wantonness to retain camaraderie and fluid enough conversation to keep it going. It's always been like, the thing yeah. that people are trying to attach to. And I think some, sometimes we're so far removed from, from the bigger cities and the coasts or Chicago that from the outside in, it almost looks like those are coteries mm. and I'm not saying they are, but it does come across like, okay, well, what if I'm a 22 year old in Alpina and yeah. I just had my first really good Bordeaux and I was just like, Whoa, what is that? Like, like what are my next steps? If I'm in the middle of clearly not sommelier uh, fine dining country uh, like where do, what are my next steps i mean yes i can go on zoom and i can find study groups but wow like those are i mean those are life-changing uh thoughts to have no doubt and so i guess my, my question is like i think we're all trying to achieve those different better rooms where you're where you're with good people mm -hmm. and one thing i always have found really interesting about southeast michigan is that there's never really been this vibe of like, I'm better than you. I'm trying to show off for you. And it almost happens by attrition where the people who have that vibe just tend to not maybe be as active as the others. I don't know if that's fair or not, but that's what it feels like sometimes. Maybe. I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to say that's uh it's curious and that's, that, that could be correct. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I guess for me, the, the, I, and I think you just said it. I, I guess I was hoping that, you know, for many years that there was this feeling that, you know, sommelier culture was going to really take hold here. 
you know, like something was being built. And I still think the people are here. I just think you highlighted it, uh, you know, briefly is that the opportunities are um, for many reasons, you know, they're shorter now, right? Well, it's mentally challenging now too, right? I mean, (laughs) how many, how many opportunities are, are there even in 2020 right now? I don't, I don't know. And it's not just Michigan. That's the thing. I think Michigan's, I think Michigan and for many, uh, for the country, Michigan as a market can kind of be like a microcosm as it's been because we went through this and I'm not saying it didn't happen in other markets because I know it has, but for in Michigan, you know, one of the reasons that I left uh, restaurants was I didn't, I was tired playing manager too. I was tired doing, and I never wanted to be an owner in a restaurant, but I didn't want to play bar manager, you know, uh, AGM general manager who also had who also got to play sommelier because I think that whole jack of all trades really tends to water down concepts. Um, the problem is, is that, you know, I think in other parts of the country, in some other parts of the country, you still did have pure sommeliers, I'm not saying everywhere. And it was becoming less common, but I think that's one of the bigger bummers that's going to come out of COVID is you're going to see a lot more, of what we've seen in Michigan in markets that used to have proper sommeliers still. And, but, you know, again, with this, even recognizing that with time, you know, things are going to change again. Opportunities will come back. New opportunities are going to proliferate. It will happen. It's just going to, unfortunately, we're going to get, you know, we're going to go through a little bit of a, a challenge again, with this and you know for those uh for those who are super interested in wine you know the point is going to be to try to make sure that you're still focused and you know maybe you're going to have to pivot to doing a different part of the business than you were expecting so yeah it might it might be it might behoove people to start understanding what profit and loss sheets look like um you know what what the kitchen looks like how to fix equipment uh, things like that, I think, are pretty crucial for anyone trying to hold on to a gig. But you know, like this is something right. you've been doing for a long time. You st- you studied through the court for for how long? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I I don't. I'm not gonna. I mean, listen. When people ask me how many times I took the MS exam proper, I actually have to think about it now, and I'm doing that. You know kind of eyes closed counting with my hands <laughs> well so, so you've taken you've taken it you've been through the process and I, I yeah but you've you've definitely enjoyed aspects of it and the challenge has certainly excited you uh on your on your best days right yeah there's no doubt about it there's two things that i loved about one i don't regret anything um about this i don't even when it's even when it was the hardest for me justin i don't regret any of that what um you know, but there, there was a lot of sacrifice with this. However, I'll, I'll say this, the things that I enjoyed most were connectivity. So connectivity, both with people in my market, you know, people who help me, you know, mentors and beyond. So the strengthening of those bonds, but connecting to the larger, and I know you felt this too, connecting to the larger sommelier group across the country, maybe people you tested with. For me, it was people I competed with and tested with and, um, you know, I think that was one of the, the things that I enjoyed. Another thing is it taught me a lot about myself, you know, it taught me how to deal with failure more, 
Um, I don't think anybody loves dealing with failure, but sometimes we can walk away from some things. But the problem is it's a unique thing. When you study for a test that you can only really take once a year, how do you prep for that big of a letdown and deal with it and dust yourself off and do it again? So even, even though I never bested the MS exam and even though I never passed it, I, it taught me how to be a better person um, in dealing with how to learn how to fail better. And it sounds like a bullshit thing. But I'm telling you this, that I learned what was more, I learned what was important. I learned what wasn't as important. I learned the value of family more. Um, and these are the things that you learn for both as a supportive mechanism, as well as, you know, part of the sacrifice for what you weren't, you know, enjoying as much, you know, when, when you go down these deep uh, preparation, you know, kind of timelines, you have to give up a lot, you know, you have to, and this is at a time when for much of this, I was in restaurants and already working a ton. So it's like, all right, so we're not going to do a family vacation this year or next year or the year after, you know, and then the money and all that stuff. But I put that stuff last family. Um, that's one of the things that was in, in deciding, do I continue or do I not? You know, that was one of the, the most important reasons why I, I was okay to take a, a break and then just decide later. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what you were saying when you're realizing what's important versus what's not important? Like what, what is not important in through, through your lens? Um, what's not important, um, you know, with, with wine, I mean, I didn't care to tell people about my journey as much i made it public for a while hey i'm doing this and trying to garner any kind of i didn't it wasn't important to me any anymore to i don't know i mean i think at some point i wanted to prove early on or for years i wanted to prove something to some people you know that i can do it here's here is you know somebody from michigan um you know, somebody, um, you know, we weren't uh, Illinois, you're not Chicago, not New York, not Vegas. So I wanted that, you know, that chip on the shoulder thing. I didn't care about that with time. I didn't, you know, with time, I learned that it wasn't important to prove anything to anybody. Um, but I also learned, you know, I also had different reasons for why I wanted to continue to go. I wanted it for myself. I wanted it for my family. But I wanted it for many years. I wanted, you know, to seek this out for many years for the wrong reasons. I wanted it at one point to validate, um, to validate something. And before I had any real, um, I don't know, resume, I, I wanted it to say, to prove to others, hey, see, I, I do belong in this business. So it's when you, when you, and maybe you've wrestled with this too. I mean, when you leave, when you lose a tro chosen career, when you leave, you know, leave that and choose to, to venture into something else, you want for a long time to, to have some, I don't know, some reason to say, Hey, see, I did do a good job. It was a good idea. <laughs> you know, I, maybe, you know, see, I, it, it wasn't a terrible decision to, to leave the science field, you know? So part of my own journey 
you know, and seeking out uh, the MS, MS exam, you know, at one point was to validate my uh, career decision. But, you know, with time, I realized it wasn't, that wasn't true anymore. I didn't need that anymore, nor did I need other people's um, approval. I needed it for myself. And ultimately, even though, like I said, even though I never got over that, that hump, and who knows if I go back and do this again, I was okay with it. I was at peace for a lot of these things. Um, so, you know, there's that. I think a couple of things, those things are connected and there's sort there's a lot to chew on there. First of all, you know, a lot of, a lot of your good friends that you, I think you do meet in this business, you meet along the way through testing and courses and things like that. And it's, it's a sort of a challenge thing, but it's like, you want them to thrive and you want to be a part of it and you want to, you want to build this thing together and feel those feelings together with your friends. And this is not just to me, this is just not for the MS as well. This is for all of the levels of testing. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you don't really have access to a really great mentorship from master sommeliers and you're a group of three servers in Topeka, Kansas, and all of you want to pass probably your pastor certified. Cause it's like, Oh, if we all do this together, this means something for us here. We can really build a culture maybe. And right. like, that's a really wonderful thing for anybody to, to, to want to achieve. But if it, it does feel like an extension of a coming of age tale. And I think part of the interesting thing about that is um, you talk about, it's never really been you to want to story tell yourself through this process. And so I'm kind of wondering and I don't mean this to be cynical at all, but I, I'm interested in your opinion on sort of if you think the Instagram uh, selfie journey culture that is very wine driven is just a part of that coming of age thing. Or if it's something different that has manifested into uh, narcissism or like because I don't really know either or because I don't really do it that much. But like I see both sides of younger kids super eager. And at the same time, I see things that are like, whoa, what are you doing here? You're, you're wearing whatever you're wearing in the middle of a vineyard. <laughs> it's just like, right. like I, and it's not to put everybody in the same basket because I don't think that's fair. But it, it definitely seems like a different thing than what you're talking about. I mean, I think part of it, too, you know, I, I, I've, had, I've had opinions and I realized on what you're talking about. I've had opinions on some of these and I realized it's not necessarily – something to that ultimately really um, I can weigh in on. I mean, you and I, I mean, you're a couple of years younger than me, but you know, you and I grew up in a culture that was transitional. We didn't grow up with super great video games when we were three or four or five years old, <laughs> nor did we grow up with iPhones, nor do we grow up with a lot of the tech that, you know, or social media that a lot of the generation coming up to now, you know, if you're in your young twenties, I mean, you've had this now for what, 10 years, you know, 10 years solid plus. And so it's formative for them. It wasn't formative for us. So I, I think that's part of it. Um, but beyond that, you know, again, I'm not going to get super wrapped up into it. There are times that I did to say that there was this show me, um, the show me effect that you would see in social media in general with wine. And maybe for some people it was fake it till you make it. Maybe sometimes it was, it's always going to be about the, the, the look. 
But I realize even for some people who really are doing the great things, it's just something that they do. And there's so, a- I mean, who is, I guess I've, I've kind of backed off on that too, because it's ultimately, it's not something that I should have been paying attention to. I mean, I'll pay attention to it, but it's not something that I should judge. That's really it. Well, there's, there's, there's plenty of valuable content if you, if you seek it out. So that, right. that's the other part of it for sure. Uh, but you know, think of thinking of the, the the factors of the stuff that you go after. I mean, you know, volunteering seems to be something that you've you've done from time to time. I know you're a really big proponent of Texom as well. What has yep. your experience been like with Texom? Texom, I think, um, you know, there's uh, there's it's it's an experience that I would say um, one I really really missed this year and not <laughs> not being able to do it. Um, but I would say Texom is kind of like this whole idea of like almost like summer camp for sommeliers. And it's, uh, uh, I don't even know, man. It's, I get, I get excited just talking about it. Um, imagine sommeliers from, you know, all over the country, sometimes Canada too, you know, having this, this opportunity to connect and to gather and yes, you're working, (laughs) um, incredibly long days and um in the in the trenches but it's it's fantastic and being a part of something bigger i mean for for i mean imagine this you know we've talked about you know the the kind of you know michigan effect and you know the whole idea sometimes that maybe you're more wishful that you know there was a little bit more of an active culture here with with sommeliers and then you know, being a part of these um, events like this, you know, it's kind of like almost the same expect of like being at an MS exam or being at a, te- you know, like a test or a competition. You get a chance to interact with other peers from other parts of the country. And, you know, you're, you're part of something. So th- that's a really great ne- networking opportunity for a lot of reasons. First of all, you're meeting people, you get, there's an exchange of ideas, you're watching processes, um, you have access to, to wines and concepts uh, in person that you get to interact with. It's not just some sort of virtual thing, you, you know. Right. So if you're in the middle of nowhere, you're by yourself in I don't know Amarillo, Texas, and there's not much going on. Texom's not that far away. That's really great for you. You can make that trip. But what if you're in like Eugene, Oregon, and you want to do something? Like, is is Texom one of those things that is not necessarily a shortcut, but you would recommend for somebody in that position? It's far away. It's going to cost money. You know, is that is are these the sorts of elements that are really um, not essential, but are completely advantageous for somebody who's trying to figure out how to make a real career out of this? I mean, I don't think I, I, yeah. I mean, it's that's an interesting way of looking at this too. I never looked at it as a way of networking. I did it because it was a way of connecting. I mean, maybe they are the same things, but I never looked at it from the other way. Uh, but maybe it is maybe people do look at it the other way. And when I say the other way from a career standpoint, for me, this was just a, a natural, you know, plug-in opportunity to meet and interact with other people. But yeah, I would say, sure. Why not? Um, I would say for those people who are like in Eugene, Oregon, who maybe aren't sure, you know, I would say, you know, maybe volunteer at a vineyard, you know what I mean? Volunteer for, um, you know, harvest or crush and, you know, I think that is probably a better first step than to, than to get into 
volunteering at TechSum first. I don't necessarily think it's a bad idea to volunteer at TechSum, though, but I'm just saying in terms of a formative career aspect, I would, I would go that direction first. Uh, I mean, to summarize sort of that aspect of it, it sounds like you're talking about creating a inclusive, bigger tent of people who could be kindred spirits. Sure. Yeah, I like that. Is that something that you think is essential for the industry as a whole? Um, I think it's absolutely, it's absolutely essential. I think people, people want to, I mean, I think part of the tech culture, the time, the time that we're in right now, it is kind of isolating. So being able to be part of something um, and, you know, being included, I think it matters more now than, than it ever has. It's rarely, are you working on sommelier teams, you know, that are beyond one, right? Most, most markets don't have that. You know what I mean? Again, those are, those are the exceptions here in New York's and Houston's and Dallas's. I mean, in Vegas, I mean, you don't have that most, most cities in the country, you know, so you are by yourself, you are studying alone, you are interacting you know, maybe with uh, people from afar. So having an events or opportunities to, to be included, you know, it's great. And I think that's part of the, one of the magic parts about TechSum. But I would say for anybody in this business, um, you're going to have to try to try to seek people out first. You know what I mean? Like I said, you know, if you're deciding you're in this business for, you know, for a while, you need to, you need to try to find as many ways to connect to others as possible and maybe you know i guess i would look at it you know to your point at that point taxon would be a great idea i just i guess for me it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the the move i would jump to first it would be i would have already decided that i want to be in this business and uh, feel supported already and then then go well, let, let me ask a side question on that then um you know it definitely sounds like and seems like just realistically speaking from my experience as well, like if you, and this, I'm not going to put this in just in small secondary tertiary markets. I think this still happens even in big cities, but there are barriers to connection uh, barriers of, you know, not getting in the tasting groups, not being able to meet the right time because you have two jobs. So you don't have the time to go meet these people uh, living in a small town, living in a town that's, doesn't have a culture or a center piece of a restaurant where people go and drink wine. Like all of those things are sort of semi natural barriers because I think that's just how social interaction happens. And that's just how ge geography is laid out. But I also think there's a, there's a fair amount of things that maybe we should consider our artificial barriers. And I know it's been a topic of contention within the core this year and i think there's a lot to chew on and a lot of things that perhaps need to change but would you be interested in elaborating on anything you see court or not court just wine industry in general that you would like to see be a little bit more inclusive whether that's in abstract mode or specific things um i mean on the court side i'm i'm not gonna elaborate on it because only from the standpoint of i know they're trying to get uh, I know they're trying to to address this, but I think the the most important things would be at the grassroots level, um, you know, early on, you know, and I would say, I don't know. I, I mean, I think, I think the tricks are, I mean, and I've studied this with my wife or, you know, had conversations with, with my wife on this, 
but the whole notions of implicit bias. And I would say that's part of it. Um, you know, and I think we've, we've seen a lot of bias in this market against women. Um, you know, I've worked with enough women who are super talented, um, who absolutely have gotten tons of backhanded, you know, uh, backhanded statements, you know, levied at them and without naming names, but along the lines of, well, send the sommelier over. I am the sommelier, but you're a woman. <laughs> you know what I mean? That whole, that whole. Oh, thing. I thought you were the host. And, right. You know, and so, but yeah, implicit bias exists as well in restaurants from, you know, management, um, sommeliers, you know, who may be uh, taking care of servers and, Everybody, and I again, this is a hard thing, you know, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to, to hold a mirror in front of everybody, but everybody needs to do that more. I mean, everybody needs to check themselves to say, hey, I might not have actively been sexist or racist, but I have these implicit biases that I'm not aware of. And you do, you know, maybe on the back end of 2020, I mean, we've had conversations at home that, you know, I have done this poorly. I need, I do need to do a better job with this. You know, I, again, everybody is guilty of it to some degree. It's just how do you do better? And I would say, um, you know, the unfortunate part about what you're saying as it relates to wine as I've seen it, how many more people of color, how many more women would be in wine locally if these implicit biases didn't exist? <laughs> and i don't have that i mean issue, but I walk, walk around the walk around every trade show in michigan and see who's at the tables right right and i mean there's no doubt about it and listen you and i worked in wholesale i mean you're one of the rare guys who's worked on multiple levels right and this excuse you know this overall excusal of horrible behavior and the boys will be boys kind of effect. It's insane. You know what I mean? It's like it's insane because this isn't the 1950s. These are people who should have been fired many, many years ago um, for some other actions. And these are just these are just the notable exception. You know, the notable ones. Never mind the people who've been guilty of just being, you know, maybe being. Uh, biased on a on a random basis. These are people who are actively, you know, employed for many years, committing <laughs> committing fireable offenses. You know, and so to go with what you're saying about the the you know the tastings um, and you know looking at the tables, you know, seeing women, you know, behind these tables, you know, is the minority of the time seeing women as you know, with the supplier teams is, is a disproportionate part of the, the overall pie. I mean, and again, if 51% of our, our, our public is women, we should see more of a one-to-one, you know, kind of effect with, uh, you know, the population of, of who's in this, uh, you know, who's at these events. And it doesn't work that way. You tend to have, and again, the, the stereotype that I would say, you tend to have a lot of uh, company people, company men, who say the same thing, who look the part, play golf the right way. And these are the guys who are hired and matriculate, you know, in their positions. Whereas people of color and women, you don't see it. You don't see it anywhere near as percentage wise as, 
as that. But I would say in terms of that's that's the observation of the wrong, how to how to get beyond that. That's a question. And that's a big question. That's something that everybody should be asking. Uh, but I would say more along the lines of, you know, every management team, I would love to see them go through bias training, you know, but that's good luck with that. I just, but I think that's my hope. I think in general, that's where it starts because I'd like to say that most restaurants or many restaurants and you and I know this, many restaurants tend to be more forward thinking than say wholesalers. Wouldn't you say? I would say it's mostly true, especially independent restaurants. I mean, so I mean, I, I hate drawing those generalizations, but I would say in general they do, and they actually do care with more of a of a notion of trying to represent you know people of color and the LGBTQ plus community, etc., and you know and supporting women. However, that's the active thing. The inactive thing is the bias that we don't know, the unconscious. And my concern is that all too often. It's the unconscious favoritism that has really kind of opened doors for some and closed doors for others. It's hap- if it happens elsewhere, um, you know, in other fields, it's absolutely happened in wine. And we already have the numbers, right? We already know how disproportionate people of color are represented, women are represented. And yes, with time, you know, organically, will they change? Sure. But actively, there are steps, you know, and again, I'm not talking about giving, I'm just talking about giving people the opportunity, you know, and not every person is going to be successful, but I'm saying before we even get to that whole idea of consideration, it's so often we're seeing just the guys, you know, and we're not seeing enough women. You know, it's funny to put it simply, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a 40 year old white guy and I feel like like the the system allows me to make more mistakes than others and it, I can get away with it be, based on the relationships that I have. If I were to be that way, if I were to act that way, um, right. I, that's really weird to me because it's like, I hear things that people do and it, it's like, it's almost surreal that it's, it, that that's happened. Like I, the, the language that I've heard when I was 25 in, in sales, the language that I heard from, from people in rooms full of, you know, 7,500 people is, is, is right. it's, it's unbelievable that that was culturally acceptable. And, you know, at that young age, I think any sales reps, like, how do I bring this up? How do I, who do I talk to if this is the culture that accepts this behavior? And I think now the, the it's seeping in. Oh, hey, guess what? You know, we can't do this because that's it's kind of a dick move, and it's really not safe for people that are different than us. It's really right. really shitty to women, and it's really shitty to people of color to make these jokes. So maybe never do these again. The hard part for me that I that I still uh, wrestle with is talking to a couple of friends who are who who are or who have been in distributorship in the last few years or so, who say that that culture still exists it's on a smaller scale and there are people who you would not think protect it that actually do protect it. And I almost wonder if it's just like, Oh, they made it into the club. So they're going to protect the club. I mean, I, I would say that I'm not surprised and I'm, I would say absolutely that, you know, it's going to take, it's going to take a willingness for people to, to, to change, to want to change. It just can't just be this, well, culturally, this is what we should do or what we have to do. No, it's going to need to be deeper than that. It's going to need to be, say, hey, 
like I said, here's where some of these things that I've done without realizing it, never mind the things that are the obvious. The obvious are there are people who are blatantly uh, bigoted, homophobic, sexist, racist, right? There's a lot of these people. That's the easy thing to, to figure out. And I'm not saying they're not damaging. They're very damaging. However, there are people who think they're okay, right? I think these are the problems that they're both problems. One is just more subtle, you know, and sometimes it's easier to call out the, you know, the ones that are calling the attention to, to themselves. I mean, I think this is the unfortunate part about this is that there's no quick answer to this. The ask that I would have for everybody, especially people who are in charge of or have the ability to um, affect change, which could be everybody, but I would say, you know, is the notion of inclusivity and make sure that door is open to people who want to go in period for anybody. And, you know, I, I took, and I'm not going to name any names here, but for me and my purposes, I always, I've always made the attempt of being open when I've had tasting groups, right. Or parties, like I want to, you know, wine-driven parties. I like I want anybody to come. I've never made this as a guy thing, as a woman thing, as an everybody thing. And some time ago, there was, you know, this was years ago. There was a all-women tasting group only, and I'm like, you know, and they were doing some really cool things. I'm like, man, I would be great, <laughs> but no. Then I was told, like, oh no, it's women only. I'm like, oh, I'm like, you know, when I've had things, I've invited you, you know, and I. I I guess the shoe is not on the, I mean, I'm, I'm not one who was discriminated against, but I guess for me, you know, and so they were doing it in response to not being invited to other things by guys who were doing only guy stuff. But I think, you know, here I am on my own, you know, being inclusive and responding to people who weren't being included to other things, but saying, well, man, this sucks. You know, I guess I just, you know, the, the, the hope, you know, the things that we can do are control what's in front of us. We can control to say, hey, man, you know, I know there's some some bullshit going on or over here. Sorry to swear. Um, I know there's this going on over there, but I'm not going to play that game. You're always welcome, period. You know, instead, I reacted not negatively, but to say, hey, you know, <laughs> I instead of saying I understood it, I I more responded with, well, this is just continuation of the same prejudice that you're responding against. So I was I was aware of the same tasting group. And my response at the time was I didn't say much as the person who told me, I'm like, oh, that, that sounds pretty cool. And and she was like, it's sorry, it's just for women. And I'm like, well, kind of gave her like a heavy sigh. I was like, ah, that's a bummer. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, like in hindsight, years from now or years from then, I look at it now. I'm like, well. I'm kind of glad I went through that feeling because yep. that made me realize that's a shitty feeling to feel. And I don't want to do that to somebody else. And I need to figure out if there's anything that I'm doing that's causing that. 100%. 100%. And, but that takes context. That, that takes context. And you maybe, you know, me too, didn't see that necessarily at the moment. I didn't see it at the moment. I'm not going to put yourself in that. Well, nobody wants to feel left out, right? Right. But I'm saying like, you know, the response is I get why and you get why. 
somebody would do that because they weren't being included. But here we are again, generationally, probably being younger than the other tasting group who wasn't including women saying, well, we won't do that. And yet it doesn't change the feelings of them not being included to begin with. So again, can understand situationally, but it's just, how do you change that? You know, you change it by just being, (laughs) by just giving, you know, giving a care and making sure that you actually are reaching out to the people, um, period of any sex, you know, or, and that's it. And I don't, I don't know if there's, I have no idea if there's like a, a sociological or a psychological construct to this, but I think of things on this continuum of safety to volatility. And within that, every, every, every communication, every um, experience, every group kind of break lands somewhere in that continuum. And we are noticing through protests, through, uh, counter protests through uh, property damage, through uh, murder, uh, systemic murder, systemic racism. We're noticing all yeah. these things in play that a lot of us just have no control over. So it's like you, if you don't have access to even figuring out where you land on volatility and safety, it's sort of like the world just gets super confusing. And that's where the wine world at a base level, you just want to go, yeah, everybody should be here because at least this can be the safe place where we can all just have a good bottle of wine and talk shop. Sure. I mean, that's the hope, at least. I, I mean, I look around and like, like right now, like, uh, you know, do what do I have uh, implicit bias? I have no idea, but I guarantee you it is absolutely possible. I grew up moderately lower middle class, but I grew up mostly around white folks and I went to a private school for 12 years. And, you know, that has to factor into something. So, yes, you know, and the craziest part about it is that this is the, the this is the the nature of implicit bias it could be something nice put it this way it could be this is the part that's not necessarily nefarious at face value but it can be uh you know deleterious with its effects you know you may decide unconsciously with a person of color to change your approach and become nicer right maybe you're nicer to this person maybe in a restaurant you're nicer to this table than you would for you know a non you know, BIPOC table, right? Maybe, maybe you, um, you know, you use different verbiage and you're not trying to be mean and they're not necessarily noticing it, but in hindsight, you're, you're giving somebody a different kind of set of standards unconsciously. Which could also come across as patronizing. Correct. Correct. And again, that's, it doesn't, that's, that's the implicit bias. It doesn't mean implicit racism it means that here is something that you are doing differently because on you know you you're registering them as different from you and that's that's where i could say yeah i've been guilty of it and guilty of it to say wow man i didn't realize i was doing this at the time but i was doing this at the time and again it's it sucks to have these conversations and i've had some heated conversations with really good friends who insisted that it's not possible that they could be guilty of this. And <laughs> you know how that goes. Right. Do you... Everybody can, you, you, what you just said is the logical way is, yeah, I don't consider myself. Yeah. But it's probable that I, you know, maybe I am, maybe I have done some of this stuff. I mean, do you, do you have an active opinion on your children working in restaurants? I think it's a great idea 
I mean, you know, who knows where they're going to, who knows where restaurants are going to be in a year or <laughs> two, but, um, you know, my son will be 11 next week. I mean, so in seven years, six years, eight years, 10 years, if he or my daughters, when they're older, want to go one, I, th- I would think, you know, if the times are now, I would think it's a great idea. Why? Well, I mean, you get to be knocked down you know, and have to rebuild yourself. You have to learn compartmentalization of steps. You learn efficiency. You learn how to work hard. You learn how to, you know, how to be humble, uh, theoretically anyway, if you let it, you know, if, if you open yourself to it. And, you know, again, the, 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 the business is going to be so different, though, in 10 years than it is now. Um, I would say theoretically, though, yes, I would love that idea. You uh, you know those arrows in like grocery stores that tell you which, yep. like the one way, like you could tell who hasn't worked in a restaurant by who doesn't follow the arrow signs in the in the aisles of the restaurant. It's like, come on, don't you know steps of service, people? But I, I totally get it because it's like it does it strips you down from what you think like you're you're allowed to get away with, and all of a sudden you're like in this hot spot with like 15 people in tight quarters moving. Uh, you know, like the heat of the food matters, um, the speed of the right. bar service, all these things matter. Well, details, I mean, and this is, this is one thing that I've come to, I don't know, openly recognize, especially if you've worked not just in restaurants, but if you've worked fine dining, the recognition of details, fine details, right? The kind of details that don't necessarily make it or break it for everybody, but they're important all the same. These are the kind of things that hold to, um, you know, kind of persist as character traits in people after they moved on from restaurants. I mean, again, I haven't been in them for, for years and I've had these conversations with, with other people. It's like you, you hone your eye, right? You know, you see a plate go by and, you know, you as a restaurateur, you see a plate go by, you're like, you know, was everything right in that snapshot? And again, it's a three second gaze. Sometimes we'll just say it's a split second. And you're like, oh, something was missing. Come back here. here. What was missing on this? Real real quick, uh, Mick. um, When you think about that aspect of attention to detail, can you think of a Michigan restaurant that's not too expensive that does that well? Oof. Offhand, no. I don't, I mean, again, I would say, you know, um, that kind of detail costs money. I mean, so, and again, what's expensive too. So, so who does well then? I mean, we want names. Yeah. Like who, who do you, who, whose restaurants do you go to go and man, their operation is, is tight. It's attentive. It's not uh, obtrusive at the same time. Belden standard. Yep. I'd say, and right now you have a short list and I don't, like I said, I don't like, leaving people out but i mean again i still have not dined with you but i know i've seen your place and the place look great but i've gone to selden standard a number of times and i would say you know that i mean there's plenty of other restaurants unfortunately that are prone to the, the changes that we know right that are too common in this business and they're cyclical and hopefully they come back up but i would say above all you know they get my my vote for it I mean, there are too many other places that I think are fine, right? And I'm and who am I? Who am I to critique? But if you're asking me where I put my money, I would put my money there over and over and over again um, because I know what I'm going to get. 
Well, Mick, I know you're a busy man, so I want to. I don't want to take up too much uh, more of your time, but I would ask one last question. I think is relatively crucial for anyone that is uh, kind of still paying attention here. What are, in your opinion, what are overarching things that aspiring uh, wine pros should consider? Um, that's great. Consider, you know, mapping out possibilities. Um, what does wine pro to mean mean to you? Does it mean you're going to plan on being a restaurant sommelier? Does it mean that you are opening yourself up to retail, wholesale brand management, supplier ambassadorship at all? Nope, I think I lost you there. You there? Hello? Hello? 